turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 and building together. You know, as these first couple of chapters have unfolded, we've seen the life of a man who not only loves the Lord and has a desire for God's things, but a man who ultimately wants to translate that into action. And as James so wisely declared to us by the Holy Spirit that faith without works is dead. And then, in fact, he went on to say that I will show you my faith by my works, that to be hearers of the word only is to deceive yourself and were to be doers of the word. And so... Anything that we believe to be true, which we believe the word of God is true, must ultimately translate to action. And it doesn't mean that every single verse you can make some application to, you know, say that I'm doing this because. But the whole of what scripture does in our lives needs to translate to our head and from there to our hearts, and from our hearts to our hands. That's the path that God's Word should take. And sometimes those hands are also maybe the word to someone else. Maybe those hands are a word of encouragement or something that can be also intangible if you're talking about a physical sense. But in a very great sense, Nehemiah chapter 3 is an action-packed chapter. And we're going to take the whole thing tonight because I believe it provides the the best context uh, for what's contained here. And so if we've seen principles of godly leadership, and if we've seen a man that's got a dynamic prayer life, then what we ought to expect is someone who gets a lot done in Jesus' name. Amen? And so that is, that is the, the focus tonight. And you're going to see something right off the bat that's very clear from this chapter. Ministry is not and never should be, nor can it effectively be, a one-man show. No more than this church is about me or maybe the elders. Uh, it is about you. It is about the body of Christ accomplishing all that we can for the furtherance of the gospel, for the things of the kingdom, for the edification of the saint, the building up of the body of Christ, and ultimately the salvation of those who are lost through the things that we will do. And that is the purpose for the church. And so this may seem like a chapter It's like, well, who cares who built what behind what wall or what gate? That is the important issue here. And you can skip over it because it seems so almost ridiculously repetitive. And it is repeated for a reason. If you will not build the walls behind your house, and I do not build the walls behind my house, and we do not build the walls of the house of this church, and the walls of this nation and of our world, we are going to be indefensible as the body of Christ. We're not going to be effective individually as we would be together. 
We are a stronger force for the kingdom when we work together to accomplish the things that the God that, the God that created this world has for us. It's a lesson I think the church sometimes forgets in our day of narcissism, in our world of self, in our focus on self-fulfillment and, and self-indulgence. One of the key lessons that Scripture teaches is, is that we're not islands, we're not alone, and what we accomplish, we will accomplish together. And so tonight, building together. Would you pray? Father, as we draw now just our our minds into that focus to where we can hear your word and, Lord, receive it and take it in, we pray that as your people you would just bless us with the understanding, God, of the importance of the body of Christ, of working together, building together, maneuvering through this world in all of its facets as, as a unit. Lord, that that unity, which is the bond of the Spirit, which brings peace, uh, moves forward in our lives. Lord, individually we, we can accomplish things, but greater things we can accomplish as we work together. And so, Lord, help us to be instructed and to take these things to heart and follow uh, your plan to put them into practice in this world. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah 3. And then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren and the priest and built the sheep gate. Now I want you to notice something here, and this is not by accident that the very first person to hear the word of Nehemiah, a godly man, as he puts forth these principles of godly leadership, is in fact the leadership of the church. And I think one of the great faults of the church is the leadership of the church has exempted itself from being an example to the body of Christ. And a lot of what we see in our world today are pastors who, quite frankly, are nothing more than celebrities. They don't intermingle with the body of Christ. They aren't even available to the body of Christ. They're uh, there for their book signing tour. They're there in their private parking space at the church, and they come and they go, and basically they do very little for the kingdom's sake other than possibly teach a Bible study. This book tells us that the priests were busy about the things of God in a practical way as well. Their hands were to the task before them. And I think it's a tremendous example for us to follow as leadership in the church. And so they rose up and built the sheep gate and they consecrated it and hung its doors. Notice what they did. They prayed over their work. You're going to see that throughout this chapter. They gave glory to the Lord. They thanked God for their industriousness and their abilities. And they continued throughout the process to say, God, unless you do this, we're in trouble. And so as they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, and then as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And it's interesting, and now it goes from uh, basically a pastor, if you will, to a warrior. It goes to the men of Jericho, these men who are on the, the outskirts. If you look at a map of modern-day Israel and you look at where Jerusalem is, Jericho is south of the Dead Sea, and it's out almost in the middle of nowhere. And it's kind of like the last defensible city before you run out onto this great wilderness that the Jews wandered in. And so the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, 
The son of Emery built, and the sons of Hanasseh built the fish gate and laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And so the picture here is going from taking these things into one's mind and one's heart and praying and waiting on the Lord and receiving vision from the Lord and getting all of the things lined up to getting busy about the work of the Lord. A church that does nothing but pray and sit also doesn't get much accomplished. Do we need to pray and sit and think and ponder and and all of those things? Absolutely. That is the first thing we must do. But once we've done that, it's time to get busy. People don't get saved because you think about praying for them. Missionaries don't go into the mission field because we think about supporting them. We, we won't accomplish anything in our community. We, we could have a food ministry that says, well, you can bring your own food to the food ministry because we actually aren't going to go get it. You see, you have to be busy about your father's business in all of its facets. And so here, the first thing that we see is once you've mourned and once you've prayed, once you've sought God for wisdom, provision, and strength, it's time to get moving. It's not time to sit around and think of who's going to do it. It's not time to start a committee. I want you to notice something in this entire book. You're not going to find a single committee assigned to anything. Do you know why that is? If you want to get nothing done, give it to a committee. (laughs) Case in point, the Congress of the United States of America. Put a bunch of people in a room and tell them to talk about it endlessly, and that is exactly what will get done, talking about it endlessly. And so here, Nehemiah faces this great challenge. He had great faith in a great God, but they would have accomplished nothing if eventually he hadn't said of himself, you know what, it's time to go get the work. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But us, we, and God are a majority. And let's go tackle the task at hand. The kind of humility that Nehemiah had is, is the perfect tool to use in this place because he's working right alongside of those he's leading. He says, you know what? I'm going to be out there with my sword. I'm going to be out there with my trowel, and let's do this thing together. When it comes to the work of the Lord, frankly, there's no room for spectators. And maybe that's, that's where you've been in your walk with the Lord, and I'm chastising no one. Maybe you've been kind of sitting on the sidelines going, well, you know, I go to church, but I, you know, I'm not so really sure about getting involved. You need to get involved. There are always places to get involved in the work of the Lord. Maybe that's just in your neighborhood. Maybe it's someplace here in the church in one of the many ministries that we have here. Maybe it's in some of the helps or hospitality or children's ministry or with the youth or high school or junior high or men's ministry or women's ministry, there are places for you to serve and get busy. And really, family of God, if everyone takes their part, many hands make light work of everything. 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 If any one person tries to do it all, they're going to die. But if everybody does what they can it actually becomes something that's enjoyable. 
It's a wonderful experience. And I've had just tremendous experience uh, in the body of Christ, just watching God do amazing things as God's people rise up and say, where's my chunk of the wall? Lord, where are you going to use me? Nobody gets very far alone in God's work. There's a, the action is ongoing in here. One of the most impressive things here are the, the number of the names of people who actually get involved in these projects. And it kind of looks like there's individual little section leaders, and here's a small section of the wall and one person overseeing that and another section right next to that and a person overseeing that. We see a very clear division of labor. You know, we're all beneficiaries of the worship team, but each one of them has a part to play, and you have a part to play as a worshiper. We're in this thing called ministry together. And we have a variety of backgrounds and a variety of skills and talents and abilities. And in fact, yours may be the very key to that thing being done well. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people say, well, I don't really have any gifts. I would remind you that Scripture says everybody has at least one. So maybe you're not quite sure what yours is, but I can tell you this, God knows exactly what it is. But if you want to hold that gift and say, I'm not even going to get started, I'm not going to try, then you're going to miss out, and so is everybody else who would be benefited by your helping hands. I want to encourage you to seek the Lord. Ask what your part is. Pray over it. And once he shows you where you can get started, get started. Even if it's a small thing, it's a little thing. Maybe it seems insignificant to you. I can tell you from having overseen some very, very, very large projects in my time at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, many, many, many millions of dollars worth of projects. If you were to sit down and try and say, okay, i got two guys here and we're going to try and get this done, we'd still be working on some of these things dozens of years later. It, it, it must be that everyone has a value. Many of us in this room have construction experience. It's why when it gets down to that crunch time, you've got all these different trades working together hand in hand to accomplish the project. The plumbers don't do drywall. The drywallers don't do plumbing. The electricians don't do either one. The superintendent... (laughs) And the superintendent, nobody knows what he does, you know. But the bottom line is, is it takes everyone working together in their area of expertise to get the project done. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. We have people who are gifted with computers and graphic arts and sound and media and sound systems and sound boards and instruments. Think about the things that go on to make just a single church service happen here. People who are gifted in, in ministering to children, people who aren't afraid to, to change a diaper, people who aren't afraid to, to take those toys that have been played with by the kids that no doubt have some type of horrible flu, and clean them. (laughs) All of those things have great import to the body of Christ. Without them, we are not what we are. We'll be something else, and it'll be less than what we currently are. Tremendous thing here. And, And as we go about looking at these names, I want you to notice that over 50% of them are obscure and they are mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. There, there, there isn't a big long list of the greats of faith here. 
This is a list of nobodies from earthly perspective, but somebodies from heavenly perspective. Know this, Scripture declares, that your labor is not in vain in Him. That what we do, we do for the Lord and for His kingdom. And as we do it, God sees. Maybe man's going to miss it. Maybe you're never going to get that pat on the back. You aren't going to get an accolade. No one will ever know. But God knows. And He sees. And He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Maybe on this earth, the rewards are slim. But I guarantee you they won't be in heaven. Because His Word declares that we will one day stand before the judgment seat, the bema seat, the reward seat of Christ to receive those things which we have done in this body. And there are going to be a lot of moms in that line. I guarantee you. A whole bunch of them. There's going to be a lot of people you never even knew that prayed you into heaven. There's going to be a bunch of old grandmas and grandpas that prayed for their grandkids for 20 years. We need to all do our part. Setting the stage for this when disaster strikes and before you can really recover, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a hurricane like Sandy or Katrina or a tsunami or the broken down walls of Jerusalem, There is a time to grieve. There's a time to cry. There's a time to weep over the course of events that have have somehow come upon you. And we certainly have seen Nehemiah do that. But we also at the same time have to keep ourselves from falling into the bitterness and uh, poor pitiful me, why me trap. Because Nehemiah could have real easily stayed put right where he was at. He had it pretty good. Yeah, every day could have been his last, but he also was in the king's court and was receiving all of the blessings of being there. And so we have to resist that temptation to to look at things from a human perspective, but rather look at them uh, from, from that place that God sees them. That is exactly why Job said, even if they slay me, I'll serve you. If my life comes to an end doing this, Lord, I trust you. And I'm going to get started. May not even make sense at times. I think it's time to reevaluate our lives. When you have big things like this, it's time to reevaluate your life. See where you're at. Check, make, take stock. Sometimes I've found that in those times of a, of a great undertaking for the Lord, I find some of the chinks in my own armor. I find some of the weaknesses in my own life. You know why? Because I see people, other people, doing exactly what I need to be doing. Don't underestimate your power to transform someone else's life by you just simply being faithful. Had that happen so often in my own life, it's like, Lord... And I'm sure most of you have probably had that. You just shake your head. It's just like, I am such a dope. You know, I, I'm whining about something that God's not allowing me to do, and some person who has nothing and nowhere to put it 
is doing ten times what I'm doing. And I have to go, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm going to get busy. Another thing that we see here is you need to get help from other believers. You know, one of the things that's very hard at times for us, especially you men, okay, I'll talk to you men for a moment. We don't play well with others, okay, as a general rule. We like to say, well, look what I did. And, you know, I was sawed through and I conquered this goal. And though there is a place for tenacity, make no mistake what I'm saying here, there's a place for us to be diligent and faithful to the task at hand. There's also a time to ask for help. And if Nehemiah hadn't asked for help, the walls would have never been rebuilt, the temple would have never been reconsecrated, and the city would have been lost a long time before 70 A.D. Ask for help. Take help when you need it, and then be ready to give help when someone else needs it. It's a two-way street. Some days you're in the hospital because you need to be bandaged, and other days you need to be the doctor bandaging somebody else. Amen? And while you're doing that, reach out and minister to people. Take those little opportunities. I can't tell you how many times some of the most spiritual things I've ever done have been around banging nails and digging ditches. And I remember when we were in Austria, and I was down in the bottom of this stupid hole. I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a hole. It was a cavern. And I thought for sure this wall that we were building was never going to be completed. I had some of the most deep spiritual conversations with, with young people, one of whom you're going to get to hear from here in about a month as he fills in for us while Connie and I are in Israel. A young guy at the time that was barely 18 years old by the name of John Wang who had never worked a day in his life. And just talking about what, is it, what does it mean to be a man? What, is it, what does it mean to be a, a man who loves Jesus? Because, see, his perception of a man who loves Jesus was something that was definitely not like Nehemiah. Don't underestimate your power to, to minister in other people's lives in some of those very odd circumstances that you think God's not at work at all. He very much is at work, if you will dedicate that work to him. This particular chapter is also the most complete scriptural description of the walls, the gates, and the city of Jerusalem. And it is, in fact, Nehemiah's description uh, that was the background of almost all of the archaeological work that's been done uh, since uh, the turn of the 19th century. And so most of the excavations, and in fact, many of the great works of excavation that have been done that have allowed the city of Jerusalem to be revealed for what it was in ancient times were because of this very account, this particular chapter, in fact. And so these gates that are described are are very indicative of the city, and so we're going to get a little tour here. And we'll pick up back in verse 3, and also the sons of Hassanah, built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. And next to them, 
the Tekoites made repairs, and their nobles did not put their shoulder to the work of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Look who's the, the persons who are mentioned as not putting their shoulder to the work are none other than the upper crust, the nobles, the people about whom you might say, well, they were just looking for a management position. Kind of holding out here. You know, if I could just tell someone else how to do it, then I'd get involved. But I'm not going to get dirty. And so as you look at these gates and walls and all of these things, there's just huge amounts of archaeological evidence that I think for most people are actually kind of boring. So I want to take these, these gates basically one at a time as we go past them. And as the farmers at that time slept in the cities and then went out to work, their farms were outside of the city. These gates were tremendously important because at night they were in the safety of the city. So they were away from being able to be raided by by raiders or bandits. They were also not able to be attacked by wild animals. So the cities were safety. The gates were safety. The gates also represented all of the functions, and this is a very interesting thing, all of the basic functions of life. And they also represent all of the spiritual functions of the coming king. Interesting how the Lord works this out. And as we proceed from the north end of the city to the south and then back around in a counter in a clockwise way, we begin with the sheep gate. It was through this gate that the animals of the city came and went. And it was the only gate through which the animals of the city came and went. It was a special gate, and it was near the temple area. Why was that? Because the animals were brought in as sacrifice. And so we have a picture here of exactly why Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheep. He said, it is through me that they come and go, and in me they find rest. And so it was that holiness unto the Lord that the animals represented as they sacrificed their lives for those farmers who brought them in, that this gate existed. It was a tremendously important gate. And it was Jesus himself who was the sinless Lamb of God. Amen? Who came in through the gate of the sheep and entered into the city and offered up his life a ransom for many. And in fact, at the end of the report, uh, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So he's actually the beginning and the end. You know what's interesting about this passage? Guess which gate gets mentioned twice? The sheep gate. The picture is Jesus, is the way that the lost are found. It's the way that the righteous are made, not because they themselves are righteous, but because he is. And apart from him and his sacrifice, we would have nothing that's eternal. And I want you to notice something that's missing. There are no locks. No gate is barred as far as the sheep gate is concerned. It's always open. You could come 24 hours a day. That was the one gate that you could come and go through all day, all night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The sheep gate, the animal gate, the gate that is us without Jesus. The next gate is the fish gate. 
It's located to the west of the Sheep Gate. And the two kind of stood basically between this Tower of Hamana or the Tower of 100 and the Tower of Hananiel. And these two towers were part of the defense system. And it's interesting that you would defend the Sheep Gate. You know why that is? For the Son of Man came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. They were defending the ability of the sheep to come and go. It's a picture of spiritual warfare. Soldiers guarded those two particular gates. They were in the northern approach of the city. They were especially vulnerable. The merchants used those gates. Everyone coming and going to buy and sell to take up daily life went through principally those two gates. The rest of the gates had special functions. But these two were where the real people came and went. And so they were heavily guarded. Because the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's this beautiful picture of the work of Christ. We move on to verse 6, and this is really the west wall. So this wall is the current western wall that is the remnant, the most holy place of all Judaism, is in the western wall to where these gates are found, the old gate, the valley gate. And moreover, Jedoiah, the son of Pesach, and Meshalem, the son of Bedoseah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronite, the men of Gibeon and Mitzvah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. And so he's speaking of this regional governor that uh, was undoubtedly part of the, the, the governorship uh, of the Persian people. And next to him, Uzel. Uh, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Notice that it wasn't just refined and boiled down to people who normally had these things as their skill and their occupation. You have got everybody under the sun involved in this work. And so it goes on to say that also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, the leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpha, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattusha, the son of Hashinabah, made repairs. And, and Malachijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Path Moab, repaired the other section as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to them was Shalom, the son of Halosheth, the leader of the district of Jerusalem. And he, and notice this, his daughters made repairs. So it wasn't just guys. The ladies were involved in the work too. And so they began in this grouping in the western wall, the old gate. It's likely the corner gate in the northwest corner of the city. as no doubt the Mishpah gate, which means second quarter or new quarter. And in Nehemiah's day, uh, this was where uh, the, the new construction took place. And so it's interesting that opposite of the gate of the sheep is where the new construction takes place. So, behold, all things are become new. Old things are passed away. So as we enter in and we come to this place, which would have been between the eastern side and the western side, which would be exactly where the temple mount is, which would also exactly be where Golgotha is, 
would be where the Antonio Fortress is. It would be where the Lord actually paid for your sins with his life. On one side was the gate of the sheep, and on the other side was the new life. And so as they entered in, they could see this place that one day they would be able to reside once they came in and they were kind of cleared through customs, if you will, and went past the temple. They would be in the area of the Mishnah, and this gate leads to it. The old gate leads into the new quarter. Isn't that the way it is? There's an old man and a new life. Amen? You get the picture of what the Lord's doing here? You know, sometimes, just as D.L. Moody said, what is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. So if you read this just in Nehemiah's time, you'd kind of be looking at, well, it's a bunch of gates. But because we know who the gate of the sheep is, it's the key to knowing what the rest of them are doing. And so here... It's from the old that we derive the new. It's also a picture of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the New Testament and the New Covenant. And in the middle of it, guess what? The Holy of Holies. The one, the only. And without there being old, there is nothing new. The next gate is the valley gates where Nehemiah actually began his tour of the city. It's up in the southwest corner of the city walls. It's about 500 yards. It's as far as you can get, if you will, uh, from the dung gate, which is at the other end of the city. Both of those opened up, in essence, to the valley of Hinnom, one on the north end, one on the south end. And the workers not only restored this gate, but they restored the section of wall that was there. And there's a reason for that. Because that particular wall was the most indefensible part of the city. And in fact, it was the only place in the city that was actually vulnerable to a sneak attack. And so it gives us a picture of spiritual warfare. And so what's going on here, the valley gate, every Christian needs that. Uh, It's that place of humility for us when we recognize that, hey, you know what? Here's my indefensible side because there's parts of us that's indefensible. Amen. Some of those thoughts that we think, things that we do, the, the words that we entertain, Uh, The actions that we engage in upon occasion are indefensible before the Lord. And praise the Lord that it leads to to a valley that for him is the valley of peace, but without him is a valley of smoke. It's the valley of trash. So on one end you have the work of the Lord, on the other end you have the work of man. And so now the south wall, so basically those two gates were in the north end of it, in the south wall, uh, Hanun, the inhabitants of Zaona, uh, repaired the valley gate, and they hung it, built it, and bolted it with its bars and doors, and repaired the thousand cubits of wall as far as the refuse gate or the dung gate. What he's saying here is, is a cubit was basically 18 inches. It's the distance from the tip of your middle index finger to your elbow. It's about 18 inches on most adult nails. So you have a section of wall here that's probably 1,800 feet long. It's just a long, huge section of wall that's more than a quarter of a mile. And, and, and so as you, as you look at this particular section of wall and what it represents, it's overlooking the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley, uh, actually the Valley of Hinnom, uh, is contained in one Greek word, Gehenna, from which we get our word hell. It's that place of eternal fire. It's where the trash went to be burned. It's also where the Canaanite goddess of Molech, uh, was sacrificed to. Their king Manasseh took the children into the valley of idols, and King Josiah desecrated that place by turning it into a, a rubbish heap. And so on one hand, you have the humility of the Lord on one end, and you have the refuse of man on the other. 
And the dung gate's a very, very important place, by the way, because it represented getting the waste out of the city. And that was animal waste, human waste, every, that's why they called it the dung gate. Because if you kept that inside the city, the city dies. And it's kind of a picture of the way we are. Unless we're cleansed, remember what Peter said? Jesus washed his feet. What did he say? He said, wash all of me. You remember that part? And he says, no, one needs only to have his, his feet washed and he is completely clean. When you have been cleansed by the Lord, you're completely clean. And so this incredible picture of those things that needed to go, you know, the Valley of Hinnom kind of separated these two places. One, the place of grace, the place that God would meet us in humility, that valley gate where you could kind of go out and you could see it, but you weren't in it. We are in the world, but not of the world. And so you could go out and you could stare into that valley. You could look down the valley and you could see what was going on there, but you weren't in it. If you went out the other end, you were in it. Up to your eyeballs, you were in it. They would take the refuse of the city and they would dump it out on ox carts out of that end of the city. There's one excavation there that that seems to detail that during the time of the writing of these things, the trash may have been up to 500 feet deep. Not a pretty place, but very necessary. Gate didn't have a beautiful name, but it did have an important service. Reminds us that Each of us needs to get rid of what we need to get rid of. Amen. As Colossians 3 tells us to put off the old and to put on the new. You need to have that gate of humility, but you also need to get rid of the things that don't belong in your life. Moves on now to the southeast wall. Shalun, the son of Kolhazeth, the leader of the district of Mitzpah. So this is up in the southeast region or lower in the southeast region. Repaired the fountain gate and he built it and covered it hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and repaired the wall at the pool of Selah near the king's garden as far up as the steps go down from the city of David. When you see Jerusalem today, there's an area called the step structure and literally because the valley was so steep, what happened was the rubble was cast out of the city and then formed into what we would call terraces. And that terraced structure would be a place that you could actually make it all the way to to the bottom of the valley below. And after him, Nehemiah's son, Azbuk, the leader of the half-district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place from the tombs of David to the man-made pool from the, as far as the house of the mighty. And that phrase, man-made pool, because of the structure in the Hebrew of this particular passage, uh, it was in fact uh, that General Warren actually did his excavations to find the tunnels that led to the, the place that Hezekiah had created this tremendous water system for the city of Jerusalem so that it could withstand a siege. And so here you have uh, a picture of the things that God was doing to supply life to the city of Jerusalem. And it says then that it said, after him, the Levites, that would be the priestly order, by the way. So this, the tribe of Levi was all of the order that would have been the priests and servants in the temple, those who were normally engaged in the act of worship in the temple. Under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs, and next to him, Hazabiah, the leader of the half-district of Kelah, 
made repairs for his district. And after him, the brethren under Babai, the son of Henadad, the leader of the other half of the district of Kelah, uh, made their repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mitzvah, repaired another section in front of the ancient, or excuse me, to the ascent of the ar- armory at the buttress. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section. And from that buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest, and after him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, repaired another section. So he's come and he's done two sections. You finally get to somebody who says, hey, I'm done with mine. Let's take up another one. Man, do we need people like that in the body of Christ? Not, well, I'm done with mine. Somebody else needs to do that. And he goes on from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And so after him, the priest and the men of the plain made repairs. And after him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in the opposite side of their house. And after Azariah, the son of uh, Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. And after him, Benui, uh, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section. So another person who takes up the cause more than once, the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. And Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite his buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house and the court of the prison. And after him, Pedidiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. And moreover, Nethahim, who dwelt in Othel, made the repairs as far as the palace and the place in front of the water gate towards the east and onward to the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekelites repaired another section. So a third group that have said, hey, we're done with our work. Let's go find something else to do next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And so now the next gate, the fountain gate. Uh, interestingly enough, this is an east gate. It's on north of the Dung Gate, very strategic location. And so as you're looking at that, Jerusalem on one side, basically Jerusalem, the old city, is long and narrow. It's not very wide. Uh, you, you can easily walk across it in, in an hour. Uh, it's not very wide at all, and, and it, but it is quite long. And so when you're looking at these, these gates are all down on the eastern side. And so this eastern wall, the Dung Gate, uh, was the Pool of Siloam. It's the old city of David. It's the water tunnel built by King Hezekiah. It is the place that, in essence, was the original place where the city of Jerusalem laid. And it was the part of the city that actually provided life for the whole city. Because in those days, without water, everybody died, period. No water, no life. Uh, what happens today? No water, no life. You don't have living water. You don't have life. And so this next gate, uh, the fountain gate, was actually the spring of Gahan that fed that water system. Uh, it's been estimated that at the height of its productivity, uh, the spring of Gahan could produce somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100,000 gallons of water every single day. This is a whole bunch of water. It could have supported a tremendous number of people. Because remember, they didn't have low flush toilets and showers like we have now. They, they had uh, a much less need for water than we do today. A few gallons per person probably would have been an extreme amount. So this is amount, this is an amount of of water that would have easily fed a population in, in probably the multi, multiple hundreds of thousands at a time. And so here's this important water source. And in the Bible, uh, of course, the water is a is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the work of God. 
and, and how the Lord works in our lives. And washing is a picture of the word of God. And so spiritually speaking, we've moved from the valley gate and that humility to the dung gate, which is cleansing, now to the fountain gate and the fullness of the, fullness of the work of God. So when we humbly come to the Lord and we cleanse ourselves, because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, and to, and what happens after that? Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you and fills you. Amen? So again, this is a beautiful picture of how we come to Christ. And so here, uh, the fountain gate, that fountain, that fullness, and then the water gate, the spring of Gehom. Uh, here, here this fountain reminds us of where that comes from because the Spirit of God has a source. It is the Holy Spirit. Amen? We get the measure of the Holy Spirit working in us, but the Holy Spirit is a person. And so that fountain gate was fed by, guess what? The water gate. So the water gate feeds the fountain gate. So God himself pours his spirit into the city. The city has life. Same thing in the, in the case of our lives. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be no infilling, and you're not going to be filled with the Spirit. So consequently, the things that you would do would not last very long in your own strength. And so the water gate, the fountain gate, basically tied together. One could not exist without the other. And this is the gate that is not actually said to be repaired as were the others. And it, it kind of gives you a picture that it was already repaired, that they had not let that one fall into disrepair, that in fact the work of the Spirit uh, isn't subject to the hand of man is another way to look at it. And so the water was flowing the whole time even though the whole rest of the city was in disrepair. Isn't that a picture of the work of the Spirit in the world today? Holy Spirit keeps working. People may not be listening. The whole world may be falling apart, but our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And so it's this picture of the, of the work of the Spirit, and that is a work of God. That's not a work of man. That's why you can't fabricate it. No amount of jumping up and down and pogoing and slaying people is ever going to produce what God can do. That will always fail. And if you look at this particular gate, one of the reasons it didn't fail, it's carved into solid rock. Who is called the rock? Jesus. Amen? So this whole picture begins to unfold before us. And, the, and can you imagine the people of Jerusalem? Why did we name that thing the Valley Gate again? And how come the Dung Gate's called the Dung Gate? I mean, couldn't we call it the Not-So-Good Gate or something? You know, you begin to think of those things. And then mentioned here in this next grouping is a place called Ophel. It's a hill to the south of the Temple, temple Gate, and it's between the Horse Gate and the Water Gate. And it was fortified. And it's interesting that it was there that the servant lives. The servants of God lived. Why? Because it was halfway between the temple where they worked and the water source where they would get life. And that's where the servants of God must live. We have to live halfway between the temple and the source of life. We, we've got to be in this world, but not of this world. We have to have the water of life coming into us, and we need to spend time in the temple, and then we need to go do the work in the place that we've been called to. And so, verse 28, it says, Beyond the horse gate the priest made repairs, uh, each in front of his own house, and after them Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house, and after him Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate made repairs, and after him Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, uh, the, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, 
uh, made a repair in the other section. And after him, Meshulam, the son of Mechariah, uh, also made repairs in front of his dwelling. And after him, Malzikiah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethahim and the, of the merchants and in front of the Milkpod gate, which is in the far upper room at the corner. And between the upper room and the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. And so we finish out this trip around the city. The next gate is the horse gate. It stood north of the water gate. It's adjacent to the temple area. It was there that the wicked Anathiah was executed, and God warned his people uh, there through, through Moses not to trust in horses and chariots, but to trust in the Lord. And Solomon had imported those horses from Egypt, and he had uh, looked at those. And if you go to Israel today, and it, as you you visit Solomon, King Solomon's stables, there's still this massive edifice of him putting together this incredible, basically horse farm. And said, okay, well we're going to store up all the horses we possibly can because anybody who's got horses, I mean, they don't really have to worry about anything else. And so the horse gate, if you will. Uh, is important because it was part of the of the defense system. We need to have a defense system. We need to not trust in those horses, but we need to definitely have a defense. And it was significant. Guess who repairs between this and the sheep gate? This is the priests. It kind of gives you a picture of spiritual warfare. Uh, on one hand, you've got the sheep coming in. On the other hand, you've got the horses going to war. And in between is where we all live. There's a battle going on. It's raging for your soul. And so they needed to be able to have this place that would be a sign of strength, if you will. We have to always be ready. That horse gate, interestingly enough, was only opened on the day of battle. And so it stayed closed the vast majority of the time. And only when that strength and readying for war occurred did that gate open. And some days we're just going about our business, and other days we're preparing for war. And other days we need to be actively engaged in warfare. And so, again, it gives us a picture of our life lived as we've come to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to the east gate, uh, led directly to the temple. So the east gate, if you're looking at Jerusalem today on the eastern side, almost dead in the middle, middle of the wall. So on the other side, you have the western wall, what we call the Wailing Wall. As you've seen the Jewish people standing before that wall, tucking their little prayers into the cracks of those stones that have stood there for uh, the better part of three and a half thousand years. On the opposite side is the East Gate. It's interesting about the East Gate because it is where Jesus left Jerusalem from, and it is where he will return to when he comes back again. And so there, uh, in that time that we will celebrate here in just a couple of weeks, Palm Sunday, it is through the east gate that Jesus came the first time. He came up out of the Hinnom Valley. He came from Bathsheba and, and Bethany as he traveled. Remember, he stopped and, and had his little time with Mary and Lazarus. And then kind of tarried for a little while. And then he came up through that gate on the eastern side of the city. And, and according to Jewish and Christian tradition, it's also called the Golden Gate. Interesting that through it, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came. Amen. Through it, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords also left. 
And through it, the King of kings and the Lord of lords will one day return. Amen? And so Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from that gate. And the Lord will return and set his feet on the Mount of Olives one day. And so we see the first coming of the Lord. And we see the ascension of the Lord. And we see the second coming of the Lord in that particular gate. And the gate Hamakat. That's the inspection gate. This is the northeast corner of the city. Uh, it has a military connotation to it and, it, and it really means to inspect or to spy out. Um, this is where the army was registered. If you were a soldier and you came from any other land, you came through this gate and you were inspected very carefully. And in fact, if you were deemed to not be uh, suitable to be in the city armed, they would take your arms and they would store them in a tower at that particular gate. And it's interesting that this is also in that area that was most vulnerable to attack. And so the Lord is our foreguard and the Lord is our rear guard. And even though the valley of uh, the valley gate, which was the gate that leads to the humility of finding Christ in those difficult situations, was right next to it, the Lord also had our backs that no matter when the enemy comes, he is our fortress and our defense. He's got a plan. He's not sleeping. He never slumbers. He's always on duty. He's always on watch. And and one day, interestingly enough, that these gates being right in a row, kind of give us that that picture of the Lord inspecting us, because one day we're all going to get inspected by Jesus. You know that, right? You've probably all seen those military parades where perhaps the generals, commanders in chief are standing on the edge of a tarmac or maybe a parade ground, and as they review the troops, they're and they're looking out there and they see the one dude with the button that's unbuttoned or whatever and he's pulled out and it's like, okay, go fix that and, you know, come back in. We're all one day going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds that we've done in this body. And so at the very end, after we've entered through the sheep gate and we've gone around and we've taken of the water of life and we've gotten rid of the things that we need to get rid of and we've prepared ourselves and steeled ourselves for battle and we've stood someplace between the temple and the living water and we've done our work and we finally go out one day, we're all going to get inspected. So you're going to either go out to be with the Lord forever or you're going to keep going right down to the valley to Hinnom. It's kind of a picture of how the Lord one day will judge the living and the dead. Amen? And so Nehemiah, as he finishes this work, lays out these incredible administrative skills. There's a few things that we can close with. It was a big project. And it all was important to God. Every single thing I just mentioned to you that Scripture declares was important to the work of the Lord. You can't leave any of it out. You can't leave out the work of the Spirit. You can't leave out the cleansing. You can't leave out the humility. You can't leave out the infilling. You can't leave out the preparation. You can't leave out the inspection. You get the picture? You can't leave out any of it. It's all a part of the work of God. And so as the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, represented the finished work of the Lord, and in it was the dwelling place of God, literally in the temple. These things represented how you get there. This is what happens when you come to God. And so if you were to take one of those, well, we're just going to have this very ornate water gate. We're going to have this amazing fountain gate. And then we're going to kind of leave the rest of the walls as we found them. 
because we really want to make sure that everybody knows that we are blessed and we have this wonderful work of the Spirit going on. This is a picture of why it's so important to have balance in your life in Christ. Because you've got to have it all. You can't just be filled with the Spirit and also not prepared for battle. You can't just get rid of all the old stuff and not bring in the new. You get the picture? These gates represent you. They represent me. They represent us as the body of Christ. And they represented to the people of Israel the total picture of God's dealing with mankind. Here's who we are. This is what we are going to be and do. And so Nehemiah and his incredible administrative skills breaks these things down. And rather than saying, okay, we're going to put a task force together and we're going to go accomplish you know, this one corner really well, he said, let's break this down into manageable sections and you guys all go do what's in front of your own house. Because you know it best. It's a picture of God using our skills and gifts and talents as he's made us. Because I know it's in front of my house. I know how to fix it better than anybody else. I know my curbs have been shoved up into my lawn. Again. I know what has to be done. You, you, you see, God intends for us to be useful right where he's planted us. Nehemiah delegated the work. Notice it doesn't say that Nehemiah went around and did everything. Amen? Don't ever fall into that trap. If you will not delegate, then you are doomed to do it yourself. And if you try and do it all yourself, you will die. You'll be crushed under the weight of it. A beautiful military analogy. You know, the military is comprised of an awful lot of very, very specific duties of warfare and soldiering. And they're all essential. You can't leave. You, know, you don't want to have everybody involved in intelligence. You don't want to have everybody in the artillery. You don't want to have everybody as, as a sniper. You don't want to have everybody in the armored division. There, there are divisions of labor in war. And we are at war. And we need to take up the place that we've been called along the wall and do that really well, as best as it lies with us. Nehemiah didn't bother going around and telling everybody. He was not a micromanager. Would you please learn that? Not only does micromanaging drive other people crazy, it will make you eventually nuts. Let other people do what God's called them to do. They can get it done. And if you have something to say about what they're doing, use it constructively. Help them learn. Help them grow. But don't feel like you have to do it all or that you can do it better. And so consequently, you should be in charge of everything. You've got to let people use their gifts. you got everybody involved. Everybody except for one group of people because they wouldn't get involved. And that's people who are too good to get involved. Nobles. People who think it's beneath their stature or their dignity. I've had the pleasure and the privilege of driving nails with Pastor Chuck. I have lifted logs on log walls. I've laid on floors in the middle of the night, tearing out flooring and putting said same back the following night. I, you, have to, you have to see the beauty of this. Because people will follow anybody anywhere who aren't afraid to go there themselves. One of the, one of the greatest 
military advancements. If you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, where is he? He's in the front of that herd of Arabian horses heading straight for a train. You, you can't be afraid to get out in front and go with the people. Hard work is not beneath the dignity of God's people, pastors included. Dirty fingernails are not a disgrace. They're a badge of honor. Amen? Amen. The second thing that I think on that line is is important is that you recognize everybody. There's a lot of no names here. A lot of people that we don't ever hear about again. And yet Nehemiah knew who they were. And he gave glory to God by mentioning their names. And they are forever enshrined in history. And when we get to heaven, I believe a vast majority of these folks are going to be there with us. And they're all going to be going, yeah, it was crazy, man. Nehemiah told us to go build it. We looked at the wall and we said, no, that ain't happening. But he encouraged us. And he came along, and I think he spent most of every day just walking around the the tops of the walls when he himself wasn't working, just encouraging people. Would you be an encourager? The gift of encouragement is a lost art, I believe, at times in the body of Christ. Just be an encourager. Tell somebody that God sees, that you're grateful, that you're thankful for him. And along those lines, uh, the daughters of Shalom worked with their father. Women worked in this project. Man, it isn't all about us guys. Please, in Jesus' name. It's been often said if the work of the church depended on men, there wouldn't be a church. That's a sad commentary on men sometimes, and it's an amazing commentary on you ladies. And thank you for the service, the things that you do in this church that look, very often go sight unseen. We're in it together. If all you guys had to stay home and raise your kids, we'd really be in trouble. And there wouldn't be many kids left. They'd never make it. This is, this is, this is, you, you could write a book on this, on the structure of how to deal with humankind and get the very best out of them. Bottom line for Nehemiah is that recognition, as he said that they had accomplished that great work by the hand of God. There are no forgotten names on the wall of God. None. None. 2,500 years after the event, uh, the Jewish people were memorialized still here to this day. The king, kingdom needs the involvement of all of us. Don't ever put yourself in the class of nobles. God uses the whole body of Christ to proclaim the gospel. The whole body of Christ to proclaim the gospel. The same teaching can be found, and we're going to see it in Ephesians 4. We've already seen it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's an interesting guy who's mentioned here a couple of times. His name is Meshulam. It means devoted. May we all have that name. Amen? Devoted. And if we're devoted to the King, then we can accomplish much together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. And Lord, I thank you for this church and for these people and for the gifts 
that you have so freely distributed and begraced us with. Lord, we love that. You've begraced us with, with so much. You've heaped upon us your, your loving hand in the lives of your beloved. We pray that you'd use each one of us. God, may we each find our own place along the wall and take great pride in building what you called us to build and doing what you called us to do. May we be each other's support. Would we come alongside? Would we see things that need to be accomplished and not pass it along to someone else, but that we would be the ones to step up to the task and say, if there's two sections, let me build two, and if there's a third, I'll do that one too. God, we need people like this today. Help us to see needs and respond to the call. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. It's in Christ's precious name we pray these things. Amen. Amen, amen. So go find a spot in the wall and get out your sword and your trowel. In Jesus' name.